0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 11th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Protecting children from harmful content online, of course, is primarily a job for parents, but lawmakers in states and in Congress can't seem to resist attempting big policy swings to keep young people away from some content. Cato's Jennifer Huddleston says even the most reasonable sounding proposals can impose new and large costs and risks.
1: Over the last few years, we've seen an increasing conversation around, you know, what young people today are are doing online, particularly with regards to teenagers on social media. As you mentioned, we've seen a variety of bills introduced in states, both red and blue states, as well as a lot of conversation about this in Congress by members on both sides of the aisle. I don't doubt that the policymakers that are discussing this issue are are well-intentioned and, and are doing this out of genuine concerns in many cases for young people, but the reality is that we have to look at this more broadly and we have to look at the impact that these proposals would actually have. In many cases, the consequences for these proposals on speech and On privacy of the very young people that they claim to protect would actually require collection of more information. It would take away beneficial uses of technology for young people to to connect um, with friends and family, as well as to find communities online that may actually improve. Different experiences that they're having. It also, though, removes that kind of element of not one, si- one size doesn't fit all when it comes to the decision a parent makes around the different kind of media or the different kind of technology that their children um, use. As you as you mentioned, as a parent yourself, and I'm a former teacher, so I've, I've interacted with a lot of, of young people that were around the age where they were often getting on devices. There are a wide range of issues and preferences that individual parents may have, both when it comes to the concerns they have around what their young person may be doing on technology or social media, as well as when it comes to the decisions about what age it's appropriate to give someone a device or what age it's appropriate to allow them to get their own account or to to have these different Experiences when you put this into practice and policy, you often have a one-size-fits-all approach that doesn't actually improve the situation for the vast majority of users.
0: Can you give me a, I don't know, a use case of bad policy here? Because it it seems like a lot of what members of Congress would like to do uh, sort of doesn't understand how the technology actually functions, and to the extent that they're adopting rules. Maybe they're not really that concerned about how the technology functions.
1: So one of the common tools we've seen arise, and this really started out um, of Europe and and the United Kingdom, is the development of what are considered age-appropriate design codes that basically place limits on different types of content, primarily through social media, but often through the internet more generally in terms of what you can show users and tries to create a requirement that prevents users under a certain age from accessing either certain platforms or certain types of technology. Now, this is not just kind of the, the extreme end of the technology that we may think of when it comes to things like pornography or incredibly violent content. We often also have seen debates over this around different kind of mental health content, different kind of body image content. Um, all sorts of content uh, has come up in, in these debates. Now, an individual parent may not want their child to see certain kind of content or may be particularly concerned about that content, but to actually put this into practice, oftentimes platforms are going to have to engage in age verification. And this age verification is far more complicated than what happens when you just sign up for a social media platform now. It's not just putting in your birth date, it's having to verify that you, the user, are who you say you are, and that you're the age that you you claim to be. So it may be through things like, collecting biometric information to identify a certain age, or it may be through having to input your government-issued ID into a database that the social media platform is now going to have to maintain in order to verify your age and that you are who you say you are. Well, that has two key problematic consequences. The first of which is it makes it very difficult to engage in anonymous speech online, something that has often been valued from a a First Amendment approach. But when it comes to the very question that these bills are designed to do in terms of keeping young people safe, you're now collecting more information and more sensitive information on the very young people that you're trying to keep safe. You now have a database of the young people's birth dates, their their, their uh, government-issued IDs. You may even have their addresses or where they go to school. And that can be really attractive to a bad actor to try and hack and get that vulnerable information.
0: And, and you said... Uh, A database of young people, but it wouldn't just be a database of young people, it'd be a database of everyone.
1: Right, exactly. In many cases, one of the interesting consequences of these bills is that they would, in order to actually have them be effective, it wouldn't just apply to underage users. In many cases, online platforms have to presume everyone is underage until proven otherwise, meaning if you're an adult who wants to get a new social media account and it's subject to one of these bills, you're going to have to verify that you're an adult or the platform may be treating you as, as underage and limiting your access to the platform. In some cases, we've even seen calls that go as far as what is a ban or effectively a ban for users under a certain age. Again, that's not just gonna impact the kids under 16, it's going to impact everyone over 16 as well who now has to prove through various means that they are exact who, in fact who they say they are.
0: This debate feels a lot like several other debates where uh, parents or interested individuals are very concerned about an issue. Uh, They don't feel like they have the time or they feel powerless in some way to do anything about it. And so they uh, enlist or try to enlist government to uh, fix it, as Kenan Thompson would say on Saturday Night Live, fix it. And uh, none of the uh, policy responses seem very strong, Uh, and at the same time, there are myriad products for sale to do exactly the kind of monitoring or preventing uh, your children from accessing certain websites online, widely available.
1: Absolutely. And this is something where we have seen a growing industry response as well as a growing response from third-party groups that help parents navigate these difficult questions. In many cases, this may be you know, the one of the first generation where parents are having to have conversations around social media or around smartphones, and that can be difficult for them to, to know how to have these conversations with their young people. But it's a far better tool to empower parents and help educate them on what products are out there and what products are built into different social media platforms so that they can develop and choose the selection of tools that are right for them and their family and are right for each individual child. The other side there, of course, is we have to also think about, you know, in a lot of these bills, they are very parent-driven and they're giving parents a lot of access to kids' information. In many households, that may be the correct decision. But we also have to think about what happens in some of these cases with a child who may be in an abusive environment and who is trying to get help or in cases where, you know, one parent may not have custody or may, you know, have not have contact with the child, how some of these elements could be abused or even in some cases used by people who are not the child's parent because it's created a backdoor to that account.
0: Troubling topic. What else do you want to talk about?
1: So I think there are a lot of concerns about what young people are doing online, and we focus a lot on these concerns. But we also have to highlight both the positive interactions at times that young people have had online and actually talk to young people about their experiences online. One of the most powerful pieces of testimony I've seen on this was a 13-year-old girl who testified before the Utah legislature on this bill talking about how it would negatively impact her. The kids themselves are trying to communicate both the concerns that they've had. We've seen some young people step up and, and say that you know they're talking to their friends, they all have these same concerns, and be able to educate each other on steps and develop those norms. But also really talking to them about the benefits it's had, particularly as we are coming out of a pandemic where we've seen a lot of young people have to have social interactions or, or form communities in different ways, and so making sure that you know we're not not ignoring the voices of of the people who these policymakers claim they're trying to protect.
0: Jennifer Huddleston is author of the new Cato Policy Briefing Paper on Youth Online Safety Proposals. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.